just a couple things that I wanted to mention before we get into this morning's sermon. One was a reminder that we have the church picnic over at Woodbridge Park this afternoon after service, so love to see you guys there. And then secondly, and I'll take a few more minutes on this, I was invited a few weeks ago by one of our new members, Bill Hudson. Bill and Debbie Hudson are new members here, and he invited me to a luncheon that was put on by the Gideon ministry, which I'd always been curious about and intrigued by. And so uh, I was greatly encouraged. In fact, I learned that, that the Gideons do far more than put Bibles in hotel rooms, which is basically what my experience was, and I thought that that was a good and great thing anywhere that, or any ministry that gets the Word of God out and into the hands of people. But it's far more than that. So here's a, a sentence from their mission statement, and I love the way they put this. We place and distribute scriptures in strategic locations so they are available to those who want them as well as to those who may not know they need them. So whether it's hotels or, or hospitals or, or military bases or schools or jails, that is their ministry to get God's word out so that Understanding that, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing first. By hearing what? The very word of God. And so their first Bible, I thought you might think this was interesting, was placed in a hotel room in Montana in 1908. And since that day, I don't think you could guess the number, they have placed over 2 billion Bibles. So I bring that up because a simple way that you can support the Gideons, a simple way that you can support getting God's word out is through uh, something they do now called Gideon cards. And we have a display that's uh, out now on the table as you come in. And if you have any questions about that, Bill and Debbie are going to be there after service. You can ask them any questions you'd like about that ministry. Uh, but they are various cards that fit just about any occasion. We all give cards. to Well, my wife gives cards to people. And most of us, most of you maybe give cards to people. Um, they fit just about every occasion. And along with the card that you would give, you would also give a, a donation to the Gideon ministry. And that donation would go 100%, 100% to providing Bibles locally and around the world. So uh, that's just my short pitch for that. I was encouraged by what they're doing. Uh, check it out at that table on your way out. Maybe talk with Bill and Debbie for a few minutes and get more information. Martin Luther, he said this, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands, it lays hold of me. I wonder if that sounds weird to you, or if it sounds spot on. Is the Bible just a, another book on the shelf for you? Or is it a book that speaks directly to you, it runs after you? It runs after you and convicts you and encourages you and challenges you. It actually, God's word, it lays hold of you. And does the whole Bible do that or is it just certain books of the Bible for you? Or maybe it's some books more than others. I'm sure we all, like me, you have maybe books of the Bible that you would say are your favorite books of the Bible. But... Do you understand that it is all God's word and it is all for you and it is all useful for your life and that it is all to be, to be worked out? And do you understand that? And does it lay hold of you and does it speak to you and does it run after you? I know that of all the books in the Bible, the minor prophets, which we have been studying, they are the least studied books in the entire Bible. Least studied books, least preached about 
And one of my goals secretly at the very beginning of this sermon series was that through this study of the minor prophets that you would develop or, or, or increase your love for these books. And so I know for me that I have an affection for these minor prophets that I didn't have before. And this morning, we are going to bring this series to a close. We're also going to bring the Old Testament to a close. We're going to read the last verses of this prophet Malachi, which are the last verses of the Old Testament. And then God willing, in weeks to come, I'll preach a standalone sermon or two, followed by a verse-by-verse series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But I mentioned this before. The way that Malachi gets his message out is by documenting these six disputes between man and God. And we've looked at the first four so far. And now this morning, numbers five and six, which are found in chapter three, verse six, through chapter four, verse three. And then Malachi will just have a few parting words that we'll look at. And keep this in your mind before we pray. The overarching theme of these last two disputes in Malachi are unfaithfulness. The disputes between man and God in these last two disputes boil down to unfaithfulness. Faithfulness. God's people were distrusting God. They weren't being faithful to Him. They were not trusting that God was going to provide for them, that God was going to meet all of their needs, and they were not trusting that God was good. They were not trusting that God had a good plan for them and good intentions for them. And he was going to care for them no matter what, forever. So God confronts them in the end of this book. Before we get into it, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we uh, listen to how you confronted your people, this nation of Israel, so many years ago, that we would learn something about you, that we would learn about ourselves, and that we would learn what you might require of us today. Because we love you, God, and we want to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, would you open your Bibles to Malachi, very last book of your Old Testament, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Today's text is on page 754. As a reminder, each dispute shares the same structure. It's always helpful when you're reading the Bible to identify the structure that the author has in place, and it's pretty obvious in this book of Malachi. In each of the disputes, God introduces the issue And then the people ask a defensive question, and then God gives a response. So that introduction, and then question, and then response, it's in every single one of them, including the two we're going to look at today. So let's jump to the fifth dispute, and that's going to be described in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Let's hear about the distrust in God's people. The issue is introduced in verses 6 through 7a. Here's verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Something very 
big was just said. We'll come back to it. We're going to actually come back to verse 6. But that is massive, what God just said. But now the actual issue is here introduced in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. That's the issue. So God calls them to repentance. End of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So they had turned aside from God's statutes. They had turned aside from God's laws. But if they would repent... Remember, if they would repent, if they would consider what they had done, if they would confess it before God, and if they would change, that's what repentance is. If they would repent, then God would forgive them. Well, as usual, the people's self-inflated view led to a couple defensive questions. Verse 7 still, but you say, how shall we return? Now, that may sound to you like a good question, like an innocent, sincere question. Like, what what must we do to be saved? Like an acknowledgement of what they had done and that it was wrong, and now how shall we return to you? But it's not an innocent question. Based on God's answer, we know that this was not a, a sincere, innocent question. It was more of an objection as these questions always are in the book of Malachi. This was an objection to what God was saying. How shall we return? In other words, how shall we return when we haven't left? That's the heart of this question. We we haven't disobeyed you. How have we turned aside from your laws? That's the heart of the question. And now God's answer, you'll hear, begins in verse 8. Here's his response. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a really bad idea. Robbing anyone is a bad idea, by the way, and is a breaking of God's eighth commandment. But robbing God? How's this work? Middle of verse 8. But you say, how have we robbed you? There it is again, another defensive question. And God replied, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. This is going to require some explanation. Especially if you're not familiar with Old Testament law. At the time Malachi writes, and this is a long time ago, this is over 400 years before Jesus was born. At the time Malachi writes, the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant was under the Mosaic Law of God, which included very specific instructions on what God's people were supposed to do with all their stuff. Their money, their property, their possessions, their food, the harvest, all of it. God's law was very clear with them about what they were to do with everything they had. Now, if you read those first five books of the Old Testament and you do your best to get an understanding of what God's law for them was, you may find, like I find, that it can be a little confusing sometimes. And it admittedly is confusing to me. But it looks to me and many others who are far smarter and more intelligent than me, it looks to us like as much as 30% was required of God's people to support the Levites, a specific tribe, 
to support the priests, to support the poor among them, specifically the sojourners and the fatherless and the widows. As well, that money was required to fund various community festivals. These were, in in effect, they were like taxes that were levied to support the national interests of the nation of Israel. Now, in order for people to give that, imagine God's people to whom Malachi was speaking and writing, in order for people to to give all of that, again, this isn't just a percentage of their paycheck, this is a percentage of everything. In order for people to give that, and not only to give that, but to give that cheerfully, because that was really the requirement, in order for people to give that, and especially to give that cheerfully, that required acknowledging at least two things. It required acknowledging, number one, that everything belonged to God. It wasn't how much you were going to give, it was how much you were going to keep was more the question. Everything belonged to God. That needed to be acknowledged. And then second... It needed to be acknowledged by his people that they could trust God. They could trust God to provide for all of their needs, and so they didn't need to hoard their possessions. They needed to acknowledge that everything belonged to God and that they could trust God to provide for all their needs. But they weren't doing that. This is the dispute. This is God's objection. They weren't doing that. It was disobedience. And that disobedience of the law that was flowing from their distrust, which amounted to, how does God describe it? As robbing God. So God calls them to knock it off, to start giving again. And then he says this in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says, start giving me the full tithe. Start obeying this law. And when you do that, put me to the test. Go ahead. I'll make sure that there is blessing, that the windows of heaven will be opened for you, the blessings will pour down, and you will have no more need. Now, a quick important point. God said this to post-exilic Israel, not to us. This is a very important distinction that Christians can be really bad at making. And that is when you're reading God's word, you need to understand that all of God's word, maybe this is a helpful way to think about it, was written for you, but all of God's word was not written to you. It should be obvious, but sometimes it's not. Right? Romans was written to Romans. Ephesians, which we'll study too, was written to the church in Ephesus. You're not like included there in a parenthesis. It's all written for you, and in all of God's word, you learn truth that you need to know about God and about you, and there is application in all of Scripture, but you must understand that God's word first was written to these various audiences. And so if we just take and directly apply Scriptures to us as if it was written directly to us, you'll make a mess of the Bible, and you'll make a mess of your life. So one example is this text right here, which unfortunately and sadly, has been wrongly put out by peddlers of the prosperity gospel. As if this was a promise that God was making specifically to you that, hey, put God to the test right now. And the more money that you will give to this ministry or to this movement or to this minister, the more money that you give, the more money you will receive. That is a a gross misuse of God's word. How this applies, we'll get to. But let's not apply it that way. Verse 11. 
I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so they distrusted God, which led to their disobedience, which was robbing God. Now, how should we apply this? How does this apply to us? We are, we are no longer under the Mosaic law in the same way the nation of Israel was. A tithe is no longer required of us. Which is why tithing is not mentioned a single time in the New Testament after the ascension of Jesus. Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Ephesians 2 is helpful, beginning in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So a case, I believe, cannot be made that this Old Testament law of tithing is required of us. Now that said, Though we are not under the law and its curses, praise God, though we are not under the law and its curses, we still delight in God's law. We still, I hope you do, long to understand the heart of God's law, what pleases Him, what honors Him, that we may live lives that are worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1.27. So while these laws are not required of us, these laws were issued by a good, holy, and perfect God. And these laws were for his glory and for the good of the nation of Israel. So what do you do with those laws, though they're not required of you, as a Christian, you want to understand the heart of these laws and understand the heart of God and apply them to yourself that you may live a life that pleases the God you love. Everything still belongs to God, doesn't it? That didn't change. Everything still belongs to God. You could read that in Psalm 24.1 or Ecclesiastes 5.19. Everything that you have... It belongs to God, and it has been entrusted to you. Under the New Covenant, we use words like stewardship. Whatever you have has been stewarded to you. The money you've been given, the possessions you've been given, the abilities you've been given, the time that you've been given, it has all been given to you by God, and it should be spent wisely and for His glory. Our responsibility still our responsibility is to support our church, to support our church leaders, to support the poor among us, to support gospel ministry. The good news of the gospel leads to gratitude in us, and that gratitude should overflow into generosity. Now that, that understanding of what we have and that heart for what we do with what we have is exactly what is expressed in the New Testament in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you'd like to turn there, go ahead, because I'll read five verses. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 
You have poor believers helping poorer believers. You have people without much helping people with even less. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. These Christians in Macedonia were an example to them and to us. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, which is a very strange sentence. All kinds of what we would think are contradictions in there. Did you hear that? Their extreme poverty. These weren't rich people. Their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So they gave cheerfully. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So it was generous. It was sacrificial for them. Verse 4, Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were, they were begging. I, don't, I know we don't have much, but let us give what we have. This is voluntary. There is no compulsion. There's no collection of the required tithe here. This is a cheerful, voluntary, sacrificial giving. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So their giving to us, their giving to others, was because they had given themselves to God. This was an outworking of faith. Because of their trust in God, they were giving to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So that's the fifth dispute. And there we have God's people who were not trusting that God would meet and provide for their needs and the level of generosity that he required, they were fearful that it would not go well for them. So God said, put me to the test and give what's being required of you. Well, one more dispute. It's in chapter 3, verse 13, and through chapter 4, verse 3, you'll hear again, distrust, not so much that God would provide for their physical needs, but that God would, would care for them, that God's plan was good. And it's introduced, the issue is in verse 13a. God said, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. He's brought up their words before. Here's their defensive question, verse 13b. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And here's God's response. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning that speaks to repentance before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. It's this ageless problem, isn't it, among God's people? It's already been addressed in Malachi. It was addressed by the other minor prophets. It's addressed in the Psalms. You've seen it in your own heart. This distrusting of God's plan, this distrusting of his goodness. And we usually ask it when things are not going obviously well for us. And things are going obviously well for others who may not even love God. And we can't fathom, we memorize verses that tell us that God is always working for our good, but we, we come up against these storms 
and we come up against these circumstances and we just can't fathom how this could possibly be for our good and so we begin to doubt and we begin to question. God, do you really love me or do you really care for me? Are you really taking care of me? And we begin to question God's goodness, his love for us, or we begin to question his goodness altogether. And it's a problem that is manifested over and over and over again in God's word. And so that's where these people were. So they got to the point where they were saying, it is vain to serve God. It's empty. It's meaningless. What is the point of serving God? What is in it for me? We are suffering while evildoers are prospering and escaping God's judgment, which amounts to complaining, which Thomas Watson called the devil's music. Now, there are more verses ahead here in God's response. But I want to give you a heads up that this last prophet will hammer the very same theme as the other 11 minor prophets, namely the day of the Lord. So people begin to question God's mercy toward them and his salvation of them and begin to question God's judgment of others. And God, are you doing this right? And the prophets are always pointing God's people to that day. The day of the Lord. And you're going to see that Malachi is going to do the same thing. He's going to point them forward to a day when God will come to judge and to save. Again, Martin Luther said, the only two days that matter to the Christian are today and that day. There's only two days that matter to you as a Christian, and one is today, and the other is that day. The faithful, I hope that's you, the faithful at their best are preoccupied with how God might use them today and find comfort and hope and strength in the certainty of that day. So ahead in these verses now are those who fear God and those who do not fear God. On that day, those who fear God will be saved, and on that day, those who do not fear God will be judged. So the evildoers will not get away with it, is good news for the Christian. And you will be ultimately saved, which is good news for the Christian. Those who fear God, verse 16. Then those who feared God spoke with another, with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Luke 10 refers to this book, too. It's a bit mysterious, but there's this book where, Christian, your name is written. Luke says, your name is written in heaven. Verse 17, they shall be mine says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Now, if you were listening carefully, when will we see that distinction? On that day. Isn't that what we're often looking for? The distinction. God, I want to see the distinction. I want to see, I want your justice to be obvious to me. I want who your people are and who they are not to be obvious to me. I want, I want 
that you are working for my good and all of this works into your good plan. I want that to be obvious to me. We want to see those distinctions clearly now. But what does the word say? That distinction, that will be made on that day. He turns back to those who don't fear God. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, this is for those who do not fear God, that day burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And now back to those who fear God, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. On that day. On that day it will be clear. And until then, we're called to trust God. We're called to take him at his word. We're called to believe him. This has been a theme throughout Malachi. We look around just like they did, and we have doubts. And we have questions. And so what does God do to encourage them? Does he, does, he, does he pull back the veil and show them all the inner workings of his providence and how this all works together? Does he give them some sort of a crystal ball and give them a picture of what's going to happen tomorrow and what's going to happen in a week to bring you comfort? And he goes way, 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 I think, into the future and says this day, this is how the story will end. I promise you this is how the story will end. And it will be for your good and it will be for my glory. And that apparently is supposed to be enough for us to be faithful and to trust God and to love him and serve him. John Blanchard said this. Paul told them in 1 Corinthians, Paul told them that Christians should not grumble Although God's ways are always perfect, they are sometimes perplexing, yet we are called to trust him, even when we cannot trace him. Assured that his eternal purposes for us will never fail. So ask yourself, do you fear God? Are you among those who fear God, or are you among those who... Do not fear God. One of my favorite verses about fearing God is Psalm 134. Psalm 134 says, But with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And that may not be what comes to your mind when you think of reasons why you would fear God, His forgiveness. So it deserves some real thinking. For many of you, when you first became a Christian, you came first to know that there was a God who was able to judge you rightly for your sins. And it scared you. And you feared him. And then you also, or then through the gospel, came to know that that God who stood ready to judge you was willing to save you that that lion would actually rather pardon you than punish you. You came to know his mercy. And when you did, your fear of God just became another kind of fear, a new fear that drove you to God, not a fear that drove you away from God. And your fear to God today is different. Your fear of God today as a Christian is not like maybe those early days when you first faced truth, when you were perhaps terrified, like a criminal before an executioner. I can remember feeling that way before God. 
That is no longer my fear of God. It is now a deep and serious reverence for God that leads to an insatiable desire to please him in all things. And you are not, or you are, I should say, like a child before his loving father, looking to please the one who is, in God's case, your ultimate source of love and security. Are you among those who fear God in that way today or not? That's it for the disputes. And now the last three verses of the Old Testament. It ends with a call of obedience and the comfort of hope. Here's the call to obedience in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, he said to them, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. And then here is the comfort of hope. And these words will be spoken, and then there will be 400 years of virtual silence from God before John the Baptist shows up. Verse 5 and 6, Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Elijah was dead and gone. This would be someone like Elijah in the spirit of Elijah. I will send you Elijah, that's what's next, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This day that I've been talking about. I'm going to send Elijah first, and he will... Turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction, period. And 400 years silent. God would not come and bring utter destruction. It says, God would not come and bring utter destruction. Rather, he will turn hearts. That day, when God would do that, would be imminent when Elijah came. And we know from Matthew eleven thirteen that one like Elijah was John the Baptist, who came and was the forerunner of the Messiah, the rescuer, the one, Jesus. The Christ. In conclusion, to this book, to this series, the sermon, let me give again what we have here in these verses as the call and the comfort of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came and lived and suffered and died, rose from the dead in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. It is the good news. It is the best news. And it is very comforting for us. But it is also very calling to us. It requires something of us. So first, the call of the gospel. In light of what we've read today, are you living... Again, Philippians 1.27, are you living your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? In light of Malachi's words, consider how you spend the resources that God has given you. How do you spend your life? How do you spend everything that God has given you, everything that belongs to God? Is it used for you? Is it used for God? Is it used for you? Or is it spent for others? Consider whether or not you are trusting God to provide for your needs. In Malachi's day, the people struggled with this, and you might too. Consider whether or not you are living your life today in light of today's uncertainty or that future day's certainty. How are you living? And then finally, 
I felt we had to end this way with the comfort of the gospel. Would you go back with me and read that very first verse that I promised, that big verse, chapter 3, verse 6? There we find the comfort of the gospel. Here it is. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. We are not consumed by God. Being consumed by God would not be a good thing. God is described because he is a holy and perfect God. He is described as a consuming fire. We are not consumed by God because he does not change. We are not consumed by God because he does not change. The reason we are not consumed by God is not our faithfulness. I, I change. You change. I feel one way, then I feel another way. I say one thing, then I say another thing. I do one thing, then I do another thing. I say I'm going to do one thing, and then I actually do another thing. I change. The reason we are not consumed by God is not because we don't change. It's not because of our faithfulness. Salvation is not something that we have earned or merited or deserved Malachi's description, I think, of ancient Israel could be a description of us at many times when he said, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my laws and have not kept them. And yet we will, as Christians, not be consumed. And the reason that we will not be judged by God, the reason that we will not be consumed by God is because God's disposition toward us as his children will never change. It will never change. And note here in the text that this was the very first verse at what we looked at. This was said first before the call to obedience. We are loved and accepted by God in Christ. Therefore, we obey him. Not we obey God and therefore we are loved and accepted by him. That's not true. Thank God it's not. I would like us to thank God for this as we take communion today. It seems like a good use of this time. Every Sunday we, at the conclusion of the preaching of God's word, hopefully when our hearts are, are open, when our hearts are softened, we obey God and take communion together. And we come up and take this bread and we take this juice, these physical, visual displays. And we celebrate what Christ has done for us. We remember what Christ has done for us. We should be, but we will not be consumed by God. Let's remember that today. I would also say that it's easy Whenever you have something that you do over and over again, like the Lord's Supper every week, it's easy for it to become sort of routine and rote and insignificant. So will you please do your best to pause today and to slow down? Maybe you pause in your seat before you stand up and come get the emblems. Maybe you pause after you get back to your seat. 
Save your conversations for this afternoon. Save the jokes for this afternoon. Your thoughts about what you're going to do after service or what you're going to eat, that's what I'm always thinking about for some reason. I have to fight it. Take those thoughts captive. Discipline your thoughts. Make the most use of this time and concentrate your mind on what's before us right now. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, And you think it's going to be the verse I read every week, but it's not. So tune in. We're mixing it up. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You're invited to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer. You have turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've committed yourself to him and, of course, to his people. You're a member of this church or a member of another church. You're committed to a local church that preaches the same gospel that you heard here today. If you are a Christian, we mean then you are welcome to take communion with us. We'll have leaders up front to serve. You'd come forward and take the bread and juice and then return to your seat and wait, and we'll take it together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the call of the gospel. Help us, God, to consider what you require of us as your people, how we might love you more and serve you more fully. And God, thank you for this great comfort of the gospel that we know that we are not obeying you and serving you so that you would love us, but because you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.